0: Welcome to the September episode of O&P Rising, an original podcast series produced by the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists. I'm Sophia Mancini, a prosthetics resident at Yankee Bionics in Akron, Ohio. With me today is a Mandy Rhett, MS, CPO, LPO, a seasoned clinician and assistant professor at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. As an active member of the profession, Amandy co-chairs the Academy's Collaborative on Inclusive Action and Engagement. Welcome to the podcast, Amandi. Thank you, Sophia. Nice to be here. I am excited to have you join me today to discuss Being a Catalyst for Change, Prioritizing Diversity, Equity, Inclusion and Accessibility from Thought to Action. Students, residents and clinicians have a responsibility to make a conscious effort to prioritize diversity, equity, inclusion and accessibility throughout their careers. And some of us may work at companies that have formal DEIA policies in place, and that's great. But I'm excited to discuss ways in which we as individuals can ensure that we are conscious of decision points throughout our day when we choose to live up to our responsibility of prioritizing DEIA, regardless of any formal company policy. Like I said, Amanda, I'm really excited to begin this conversation with you, but I wanna start out today by just having you define acronym DEIA and maybe give a brief example of each.
1: So the D D and DEIA is diversity. And so that is really exploring the backgrounds of different genders and sexual orientations, any marginalized group. Diversity just really encompasses race, culture, sexual orientation, religion, and that's really what diversity is speaking to in this acronym. Equity is the E. Equity involves an equal opportunity according to where we start. We all don't start from the same opportunities, the same circumstances, the same place in life. And so when we think about equity, we think about scholarships for underrepresented minorities. Or we also think about sometimes we have an uncle or a grandfather who was involved in O&P that can pull us into the clinic and have shadowing opportunities. And A lot of other people don't have that opportunity. So how can we create an equitable opportunity for people who are entering the profession and an equitable opportunity for people to actually get the education needed in order to become a clinician. And we talk about inclusion, we are defining it as equal access and opportunity to groups that may otherwise be excluded. And inclusion has often been talked about in the LGBTQAI community where they have been historically excluded from marriage equality and they've been historically excluded from receiving equitable health care based on their identity, the, the identity that they identify with, not the identity that you know our society puts on them. Um, and accessibility focuses on how the disabled access benefits from a site, a system, or an application. We do have the American Disabilities Act, but how do workplaces actually change and respond to the needs of someone who is disabled? Oftentimes, people are temporarily disabled and need accommodations. And how does the workplace actually respond to that and so we group all of these words together as d-e-i-a which is probably a word that uh, acronym that we hear very very common just in the world talking about these issues
0: it's interesting when you were talking about equity the first thing i thought of is it's a role of making sure that everyone has an equal opportunity to get here but because we are such a small field it is also spreading the field to even you know getting people to know about it and reaching out to all different walks of life and different communities and making sure that everyone is aware of what we do and that they have the potential to join us and with accessibility i think being omp you know the nature of omp Accessibility is interesting for, you know, our workplace setting because so many of our patients are having, you know, temporary or permanent mobility issues and they're coming to us to gain accessibility. And I think that, that that's an important one in our field because, you know, that's kind of what we preach here and that, that's what we do here. So really great. Thank you for defining those. So can you describe some of the issues or barriers that prevent prioritizing DEIA in the workplace? Absolutely. So I think it's also important to note that we have
1: laws in place, and this is what HR departments of larger companies actually do. And in small companies too, we have to adhere to laws. So we have the Civil Rights Act, we have the Equal Opportunity Act, we have the Equal Pay Act, Age Discrimination, American Disabilities Act. But the issues and problems come with, yes, we have these laws, but if you don't create a workplace culture around embracing diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, that is where these problems and barriers lie. A lot of the issues happen with ignoring issues and problems in the workplace, Um, especially when they are brought up, either formally or informally. There is, oh, this doesn't happen here, or this is a personal problem and they're not addressed from upper management. A lot of times when these issues come, we have ego versus understanding. All of us are human beings and we have our ego, oh, that doesn't apply to me, I don't think that way, instead of listening to someone's issues and problems and then asking the right questions. A lot of times companies will make statements or really just brush the surface of issues, but then they don't bring in someone that's an expert perhaps that can really get down to issues and problems. And really what happens is is that someone, a clinician, or someone that's part of the uh, workplace is part of a marginalized community of people that their issues and barriers seem seem relatively small because they're one person. And so a lot of times those barriers are ignoring, not listening, um, maybe gaslighting and making sure that that issue stays small. And so it is something that is definitely hard because it's not necessarily and it reaches an HRable offense. But what I've seen is that when you do have the right people involved, when you do have a listening ear, when you kind of remove your ego, that's when changes can happen. And so there's a couple of things that can be implemented to help with reducing those barriers.
0: That's great. What kind of things do you think, maybe just like top three, that can be implemented into the workplace to help with those barriers? And then also you talk a little bit about getting an expert involved. What kind of expert are we talking about? Is that someone outside the company? Um, And do you have any experience with, you know, getting an expert involved?
1: Yes, yes. Oftentimes people think experts are someone with a PhD in DEIA or health equity. And that, of course, is true. You know, that's why the area of PhDs have have been created. But oftentimes it can be a mentor. It can be someone that is a racially, culturally part of an underrepresented or marginalized group can share the same experiences as that person and just identifying that person and and reaching out and saying hey i have this colleague i have this person under me or i have this friend in the profession that is part of this group just reach out to them and see if you can just talk through some things i think that is definitely reducing the barrier of saying how about i solve your problem for you no let's go to this other person I don't even have to be involved and they can be the experts. So creating that relationship with a mentor can often be an expert. Experts can also come in and do webinars and, and trainings. And so um, I've done webinars and trainings for people. There's offices that of health equity from universities and things like that that have come and done webinars and trainings for people. And oftentimes people will sit there and the information won't get through, but education to me is education if you've never heard it before, then sometimes you can't be held accountable. But once you get that education, that's important.
0: Yeah, that's a great point with education. You know, like exposure is education, I think is, you know, what what you're saying there. And I completely agree. Right. So how can we personally and professionally take ownership of or in or contribute to reducing these barriers? And then can you give some examples of implementing common changes that promote DEIA?
1: Absolutely. So I think self-awareness is top priority, and that's getting back to, you know, your own personal ego. I think a lot of people ignore these issues, and it's not up to the person that is part of a marginalized group to educate. And so once you identify like, hey, there's an issue or problem or concern in my workplace, how about I go and seek resources? And if I don't know, maybe it's appropriate that I have the relationship with that person to ask, or I can seek information from this other resource. I think so. Self-education is really important. I think connecting yourself with someone who is trusted, that you can talk to is important. Whether you are the person that needs to educate yourself or like I said before, you are the person that needs to talk to a mentor. I think that's really, really important. Also, taking um, stock of how clinicians, coworkers, and patients perceive your workplace. Is your workplace a welcoming environment? Because ultimately, if you choose to ignore diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, it'll seep into your bottom line. And patients are not going to want to come to your workplace. Clinicians are not going to be attracted to you and want to stay at your workplace. And so things like making sure that pictures in the, in the waiting room are inclusive of our patient population, our clinician population, perhaps adding pronouns to your intake forms shows that patients and clinicians that don't conform to our typical gender norms, have a place where they can self-identify. I think that is really important. So these are some actionable items that are things or policies that can be apart from just the laws that we have. It's creating this inclusive workforce
0: that everyone knows that you're welcome. Your mention of pictures of patients in the waiting room. We've actually been noticing that a lot of the suppliers, that they send posters for us to put up and it will be like someone hiking in a sea leg. And then we have these patients in our office who see that on the wall and they're like, when am I going to be able to do that? And as we know, our patients fall into prosthetically different K levels and different categories. And we're actually working on Getting some more appropriate imaging that not only, you know, that covers accessibility too and like people's levels of function so that they're coming in and maybe they're seeing a picture of someone who looks like them, whether it be over a different age range, over a different mobility level. But, you know, I think that's just interesting you mentioned pictures because it falls under so many categories, you know, it's it's diversity, it's accessibility, inclusion, it's all of it. And that's just something we're kind of going through right now at work that I really value that, you know, that's something they want to do here is make sure that all of our patients are feeling included.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, and that's really kind of
0: a low-hanging
1: fruit, right? If you are now part of a disabled community and you see someone that is your mobility level in a photo and perhaps your same race or culture in a photo, that's very powerful. So that's very low-hanging fruit that is very implementable in a lot of offices across the country. Sophia, thank you for that interesting discussion. Um, So I'd like to hear from your perspective about issues that you are a recent graduate, so issues from your university, and from an OP professional view. So what did DEIA look like in the university setting for you?
0: yeah so i just graduated in april i was at eastern michigan university in the omp program for the last two years and i think at the university setting i think we're working to expand deia abc is doing great things with the scholarship for omp diversity you know kind of giving that opportunity for a more diverse population to receive that large scholarship and you know drawing from my own experiences at eastern we were mostly female which we all kind of know that the field is shifting towards that. So that was a uh, big change. You know, the, the staff there has seen over the years, you know, the shift. And I don't know, what's it like at Baylor?
1: Uh, it is mostly female. We, ha- we do have you know our, our 24 students. so But it is mostly female. And I feel like speaking to some of the other program directors about applicants and all of that, it is shifting to female. So now that more education is required, you know, we're following the trends of education where mostly females are pursuing this. And I think that's great, but there is a, once you get out into the field, I think it's a little more balanced when you look at males versus females.
0: You agree with that. Um, It's more balanced, but the females are working their way in. And I think that's great. And that makes it more comfortable, you know, for me being young and entering the field as a female. So I'm interested in like, because you're so experienced in the field, but now you're also back in a university setting. So what is it like seeing applications come in? Like, what kind of applications are you getting? Are they, are they very diverse? Do you ask anything about, like, where did you hear about the field? Like, are you able to have any insight into that? Yeah, I feel like
1: a lot of people hear about o from a career fair. And it's great because we're getting out there in front of college students. A lot of people have had a family member that has experienced an amputation or has worn an orthotic device or they've had to wear a device themselves. And I think that's public knowledge. I mean, when you ask a clinician, how did you get involved in the field? That's the story that they'll tell you. I know for me personally, I had a family member that that wore a device. So that's what really got me clued into the field in general. But that is also very niche. Right. And this career can be is it, it is a great career that above all else can provide a great lifestyle, you know, and I think that thinking about persons who don't see this career as a viable option are usually those people who don't see other careers as viable options that can really elevate their lifestyles. And when I think of that, I think about underrepresented minorities and how can we give them this visibility if you don't see it, you can't achieve it. I know that's kind of cliche, but it's very, very true. If you don't see anyone in your circle that is an OMP professional or that has gone to college or grad school, you know, that is something that is really, really important. And honestly, underrepresented minorities are huge in that cohort, but it's everyone, right? It's everyone that if you're a high school student who has this great passion for building things in healthcare. And you never know about
0: L&P, how are they going to ultimately pursue this career? Touching on what I mentioned earlier about a parallel to equity being spreading awareness of the field to make sure everyone gets this opportunity, the things that POP is doing within the field are great as far as promoting the field. And I spoke to a student, a high school student the other day, who's her lacrosse coach is one of my friends, and she shared one of my posts. And now this high schooler who probably never would have experienced I talked to her on the phone on the way home the other day. So I think that that ties in right with what you were saying there. But I did think of another question that I want to ask you. So do you feel like because of the nature of our field and the type of work that we do every day and the type of patient populations that we work with, that we are more inclined to practice DEIA or prioritize DEIA? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say that we as healthcare professionals,
1: we have a obligation to, I know Baylor, you know, after we have a white coat ceremony, like a lot of other schools do, and we give an oath to do no harm, right? And so the medical community overall vows to do no harm, right? And that could mean a lot of things. You know, we do no harm for our devices. We do no harm psychologically. And so I feel like that is our charge and our mission and our and our oath. But also, we are not exclusive of the world and being human beings and being products of our environment and like how like what forms our thought process. And it has been proven through research that healthcare providers are biased, you know, and those biases are environmental. And so I feel like that seeps into OMP professionals as well. It can seep into how we treat our patients. And I would like to think that most of OP clinicians treat our patients with respect and we're equitable. And I'm sure that happens, right? And I'm sure that I want to think that, you know, you treat your colleagues with respect and there's not a lot of microaggressions. And I know the last OMP Rising was about having difficult conversations, you know, that type of thing. And so we would hope that everyone behaves great in the workplace, but that they don't because we are part of the human race. And I think that is the reason why we're having this discussion is that apart from the laws that protect us, we have issues with microaggressions. You know, we have issues with creating toxic workplace environments that have to do with non-acceptance of people who are different from us. And that seeps into treating our patients differently oh, here comes this patient with X, Y, Z. And that literally manifests in maybe a shorter interaction with that patient. Lack of eye contact. Or you treat the patient fine, but then when you get back to your lab, you're venting to your coworkers inappropriately about a patient. Like These things happen that affect patient care and also affect the relationship that you have with your coworkers. And I think talking about it in this type of podcast and talking about it with your coworkers, only can reduce the instance of this and ultimately improve our patient care because ultimately it'll change our minds and our brains in the way that we think hey this is not appropriate to do even though i've been conditioned to do this because of my environment i am going to actively try to change my behavior and i think that going back to your original question yes we deal with patients who happen to have disabilities and amputations and diagnoses that need prosthetic and orthotic support but we are not excluded from the implicit and explicit biases
0: that are kind of part of our upbringing, per se. That's great, great insight, Mandy. I mean, so basically, although we are seeing this population every day, we are not exempt from working on this. You know, seeing these patients every day alone is not enough to say that we practice this. So it's something that, you know, everyone needs to work on. Yeah, that was great. Thank you for that.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that I'd like to point out is that I have mentors myself. And I feel like the first mentor that I had was this older white clinician in Oklahoma who um, he's going to laugh if he hears this that I, call, that I call him older. But looking at us on paper, like we're kind of very different. But he's an engineer. I'm an engineer. We start off as engineers and we both fell into this profession and love this profession And we are seen as two different people, but then having these personal conversations with someone who's different, we're actually quite the same. And I think that people miss that. People miss having conversations with people that may not look like them, may not be culturally like them, racially like them, may have a disability, and they miss having these conversations because they don't find common ground. You know, As long as you can find common ground with someone, you can have these great conversations. And I think that that can happen with your colleagues, right? I think that a lot of people come to work and you spend eight hours a day with someone and you never really understand who they are. You turn on maybe a provocative radio station in the lab and you really do block out everyone because they don't want to come to the lab because you have something that's very charged, but you're not thinking, right? You're not thinking like, hey, this is not such a great thing to put on in the lab. Maybe I should put on a different radio station that could make someone come back there and talk to me. We all have our opinions and we all have the way that we think and absolutely DEIA is not meant to change who a person is but it's meant to make people think because we all love our kids right we can talk about our kids with there's things that we don't want to talk about because we disagree and that's okay but thinking about DEIA and creating policies in the workplace and creating a workplace that is non-toxic is something that we can all do and our patients absolutely see that as a clinician There's practices that I'm like, I'm going to exclude that from the list of places that I may tell a patient to go because I know they have a toxic workplace environment. And so it matters. It matters how we think, how we choose to move throughout our day. And I think that that's something that we can all do. We can all work on ourselves regardless of our own personal opinions and our own backgrounds is creating an environment in the workplace that is positive for everyone.
0: I love that pro tip too of just finding common ground with someone, just going to work every day and trying to spread positivity and connect with people. I think that that helps push DEIA in a workplace. So that's great. Yeah. So what has DEIA looked like during your residency so far? Here at Yankee, we actually we have a very diverse staff, you know, from race to age, identified gender, disability, and it has been very, a very welcoming and comfortable environment to work in for me coming in as a resident. Kind of like we just talked about, I really value coming into work every day to such a diverse staff. And I think that it serves as somewhat of a mental check every day before going in the room with patients who also fall into a lot of different categories. You may see a lot of very different and diverse categories throughout the day. So you know as a resident, that's very valuable to me. And probably for the patients, too, coming into a place where they see diversity and, you know, I think just makes them more comfortable as a patient. It makes me more comfortable as a resident working with a staff like this and seeing patients that fall under a lot of categories. Well, that's great, Sophia. That's good to hear.
1: And what has inspired you to get involved in the Academy's Collaborative on inclusive
0: Action and Engagement? So this is important to me, you know, all of what the collaborative about all of what this conversation is about. And, you know, this is how we make change by talking about it, by bringing people's attention to it. Like I said, I've always valued being comfortable in whatever educational or work setting I'm in. And, you know, I know I struggle at times where I'm in a place where I'm made uncomfortable and I put myself in other people's shoes and I want them to you know seek that same comfort but you know not have to seek very hard for it you know i want them to be able to get that same comfort um not be made to be uncomfortable in whatever setting there is so i think practicing these things can ensure that we make our field a comfortable and a safe place for everyone who's thinking about joining whether it's clinically manufacturers patients what have you but getting involved was the best way for me to have that outlet of feeling like I'm contributing to making others comfortable in the field. And I've really enjoyed it so far. Residency is a little crazy, so I'm, I'm trying to stay as involved as I possibly can. But the collaborative has been great. And, you know, being a part of something like that leads me to opportunities like this. And I have really, really enjoyed this conversation with you today, Mandy. Yes, and I can second that your involvement in the collaborative has been invaluable. So thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks again for joining us, Amanda. And thanks to everyone listening to this episode of O&P Rising. Join us each month as we continue our conversation with seasoned O&P professionals as they share candid insights on topics relevant to those interested in starting on the right foot when it comes to a career in O&P. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out the Academy's other podcasts for OMP professionals: the award-winning OMP Research Insights with Dr. Steve Gard and OMP Clinical Insiders with Academy Scientific Society's Chair Seth O'Brien, a podcast that was created for conversations on specific areas of clinical care. For more information on the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists visit us online at omp.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.